Hey, everybody. This is the Marianne Williamson podcast, and this is Marianne Williamson. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, We're here to talk about war and peace. It was around 2000 that I first heard former Congressman Dennis Kucinich talk about a Department of Peace and why one was necessary as an executive level uh, cabinet position um, in uh, in the executive branch of the US government. I was completely excited by it because it was completely aligned with the relationship that I perceived between sickness and health. You can't just wait till you get sick, don't take care of your body, don't take care of exercise, don't take care of diet, then just wait when sickness almost inevitably arises and then apply the old allopathic model of healing, which is to then through external remedies, seek to eradicate or suppress the physical symptoms. If that's all you do, because the symptoms were caused by something, if all you do is seek to eradicate or suppress a symptom, then frequently the symptom will simply end up morphing into another one. So, In terms of healing the physical body, the whole notion of integrative health came onto the scene towards the end of the last century. Everybody was very excited, body, mind, and spirit. And this included the notion of preventative health. It included the notion of proactively cultivating health, not just waiting till you get sick, but cultivating health. That included your exercise. It included your diet. It included your lifestyle and so forth. So it seems to me that when it comes to violence and peace, what we do is that we don't proactively cultivate peace the way we should. Rather, we just wait till violence arises and we seek to to apply to societal healing the old allopathic method of eradicating or suppressing symptoms. But when it comes to healing our society, particularly the spate of violence, we need to address causal issues. When it comes to international affairs, I began to understand, as anybody does who does some deep observation in these areas, that there is institutional resistance to the proactive cultivation of peace. There is an institutional resistance to waging peace, and for a very nefarious reason. It doesn't make anyone any money. Whereas war, preparing for war and waging war, has become very big business. Um, Most of us are well aware of the famous words of uh, former President Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell address to the nation in 1961. He coined the phrase military-industrial complex. Now, remember, Eisenhower had been the supreme commander of all allied forces during World War II. He was certainly no slouch. But when World War II happened, we didn't even have a standing army. And Eisenhower, who then after the war, seven years later, became president, he certainly realized that at the end of World War II, we needed a standing army. But he also knew the great danger that it would pose to the nation when huge industrial forces, monetary forces, congressional forces, um, defense industry forces got together and formed a huge influence on the society, which by 1961, if you read um, Eisenhower's farewell address, he, he claimed that that influence was already present among us. I love these very famous words from Eisenhower, where he said, quote, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. 
This world in arms is not spending money alone. If you actually look up his farewell address, I also uh, wrote about this in my Substack article called um, Turning Swords into Plowshares. Uh, I quoted quite extensively from his farewell address. That was then and this is now. It is our turn now. We must push back on the influence of the military-industrial complex because Eisenhower's worst fears have come to pass. We now have a multi-trillion dollar defense industry. Uh, this year alone, our uh, defense uh, budget is $778 billion. Apparently, it doesn't really matter whether you have a Democratic president or a Republican president. Our presidents in the modern era, as well as our uh, congressional representatives, both parties, are such handmaidens to the military-industrial complex. Um, the gargantuan scale of military spending remains unquestioned. We have a uh, defense economy. We have a military economy, a war economy in the United States. Something like 51% of all jobs uh, are on some level, at least indirectly, military-related. This can't continue. As uh, John F. Kennedy said, mankind will put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind. You know, one of the issues is that people, I think some people don't get that building peace is a real thing. People know what waging war looks like, but don't necessarily realize what waging peace looks like. We need to have just as much of a strategic mind around waging peace as we do around waging war. Right now we have people playing war games. We need people playing peace games. Right now we have a military academy. We should also have a peace academy. There are four main principles of peace building. Number one, expanding economic opportunities for women. Number two, um, expanding educational opportunities for children. Number three, diminishing violence against women. And four, ameliorating unnecessary human despair. When those four principles are actualized, when we're very serious about those things, statistically, there's a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of conflict in any system. We need to transition from a war economy to a peace economy the same way we need to transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. Nothing short of that is forging the kind of sustainable and even survivable future for our democracy and for the human race as a whole that uh, we are responsible for as the generation in charge and in power in our country today. So that's the question on the table. How do we do that? And one of the ways is to inform ourselves, become educated, understand what's happening. I think if you're even listening, you already get that we spend too much money on the military. But why? Why? You know, why it, we ended the war in Afghanistan, so why do we need a $778 billion defense establishment? And if anybody is thinking it's only because of our uh, possible enemies, then I would suggest that there's naivete there. Um, we do need a strong military, but our current um, our current defense budget does not reflect just what the military says that it needs. It reflects hundreds of millions 
uh, it reflects billions on top of what they say they need. And our foreign policy and defense is much more dictated by the likes of Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and, Bo and Boeing, our defense manufacturers, than it reflects the legitimate security needs of the United States. Um, you look at something like the Afghanistan war, which cost $2.3 trillion. Um, Two trillion of that went straight into the pockets of military contractors. And I think anyone would agree now that that war was, in fact, a spectacular failure. We were there at least 10 years longer than we needed to be. And what we did while we were there did not guarantee uh, that that country would be able to push back the Taliban for longer than, what, 10 days? And that's because it was mainly a an exercise in military activity, but it was not an exercise in right governance. In fact, the entire time we were there, we built and propped up a corrupt government, so corrupt, in fact, that people didn't uh, dislike it that much more than they disliked the Taliban. So there's much to talk about, and 2022 is the year to start turning the ship around. I'm really excited about my guest today, Andrew Coburn, who has written a book called The Spoils of War, he has a lot to tell us about what is called in Washington, D.C., the blob. It involves State Department. It involves the defense establishment. It, it involves the Pentagon. And very, very specifically, it involves military contractors. Uh, let's get started. Let's inform ourselves this year. And most importantly, let's start making some changes. Andrew Coburn, thank you so much for being with us. I'm very grateful. Oh, I'm so pleased to be with you, Marianne. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think we are living at a time of reckoning in the United States. I think many people are being forced to look at things um, that they have not wanted to look at, not wanted to believe. So many of our current realities are in contradiction to so much that we have been brought up to believe about ourselves. And one of that um, one of those things, of course, has to do with the U.S. military. I think the vast majority of Americans like to think we're the good guys and that we have a strong military because we have to, because there are all these bad people out there. And But we are standing uh, in all of our military pursuits for democracy and freedom and protecting the good guys and fighting off the bad guys, and that's the way it is. I think um, that naive sort of fairy tale version of the truth about the Pentagon and the U.S. military um, has been busted for millions and millions and millions of people who now look but don't even know where to begin. And that's why I so value your contributions. Thank you so much. Thank you for writing this book. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to just go right in and ask you some questions that I think would be helpful to my audience. Is that all right? Sure. Let's go ahead. Okay. I'd like to begin with a quote in the introduction. You say you're talking about uh, some senior Marine generals uh, talking about plans in Afghanistan on the ground, according to someone who was present at the relevant meeting, that when Trump uh, ordered a surge, uh, the general said, it won't make any difference in the war, but it will be good for us at budget time. Then you go on to say Colonel John Boyd, the former Air Force fighter pilot who famously conceived and expounded a comprehensive theory of human conflict, once pointed out that there was no contradiction between the military's professed mission and its seeming indifference to professional to operational proficiency. Quote, people say the Pentagon does not have a strategy, he said. They are wrong. The Pentagon does have a strategy, 
it is. Don't interrupt the money flow. Add to it. Unquote. Now, every time we read something like this, Andrew, we everybody, you know, gets on the Internet and posts that famous speech by um, uh, General Eisenhower, then President Eisenhower, in his farewell address to the nation, warning us about the military-industrial complex. We did not have a standing army at the beginning of World War II. Everyone was agreed. Obviously, we would need one after World War II. But Eisenhower warned us of the peril that would face this nation if there was this marriage of congressional and military and corporate power. How did it get so bad so fast after Eisenhower warned us? Well, I mean, as you, know, as, as you can see from Eisenhower's speech, we were already well on our way. That's what alarmed him. Um, but I think, you know, it was, a, it was a combination of things. I mean, fairly... He made that speech because he was concerned, as you say, about you know the rising power of the military, and crucially, I'm glad you mentioned that the you know connection, the infiltration of the Congress, so the the military industry infiltration of the Congress. But that right after that, we had a new administration come into power who said we weren't spending enough; we had to spend more. We we were falling behind the Russians in missiles. Um, it really, you know, it, there was no, no one after Eisenhower had the credibility, had the desire, uh, it seems, to attempt to cut back on the military. Um, I think, you know, Jimmy Carter made some noises about it when he was running in the 70s and in 1976, but that didn't last long. Um, what we see and what I talk about in the book is how whenever there's a possibility of reining this in, of, you know, that the spending might be heading in a downward direction. We immediately have a new threat. They discover a new reason to be scared, whether it be the, you know, now it's the Chinese, before it was the Russians, or the, at one point they were saying even, you know, the Venezuelans were going to attack us. Um, so there's this, like, a, it's like a, I say it's like a virus you know, that exists like it's the Pentagon. I see the whole system as like a giant malignant virus that exists only to expand and guard it, both to grow and to safeguard its food supply. And the food supply is, of course, money. And this is really all about money. Well, that's why it's called the blob here in Washington, D.C. Let me ask yeah. you a question. You were talking about the uh, presidential administration after Eisenhower, which, of course, would be JFK. Now, yeah. if you look at the two parties today, the two major political parties are in lockstep in supporting the gargantuan budget of the military. Um, clearly, they are bought and sold. They are legally bribed by the military-industrial complex. Donations from Raytheon, uh, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, et cetera, clearly guide their actions. Now, at the time of Kennedy, there had to be a, a line of development there. Kennedy was not just trying to get money for the military defense uh, contractors. He was actually a hawk on these issues, right? I mean, at what point did we go from presidents who were just, they were hawks, to presidents who were basically just representing such corporate interests that it didn't even matter anymore? Um. Well, I think, yeah, they just all became hawks. It became, you know, absolutely, you couldn't even begin to think of, you know, running and winning unless you were a hawk. Um, <clears throat> Kennedy, you know, he 
he famously invoked the missile gap. You know, there was a gap between us and the Russians in terms of missiles, that the Russians had more missiles than us. And then he got into office and, hey, presto, turns out we did, you know, there isn't a gap. But nevertheless, they went ahead and built anyway. I think it's, um, you know, <clears throat> I think uh, if I could think of a sort of deciding moment in all this, when it became clear that the system was really beyond redemption, it was 1980. Uh, when was a friend of mine, Ernie Fitzgerald, who was a Pentagon official, a famous whistleblower, and he said the Joint Chiefs auctioned off the, uh, the presidency from the battlements of the, of the Pentagon. That they, it was made clear at that That's, point. Wait, I, I, I want you to repeat that line. It is so extraordinary. You just said that the Joint Chiefs auctioned off the presidency. Please say the whole line again. Yes. In, nine, in the 1980 election, the Joint Chiefs auctioned off the presidency from the battlements of the Pentagon. Um, they made it clear that, you know, that whoever promised them the most money, they would give the, they would get their support. And that's really what happened. Uh, Reagan, Carter had been busily increasing the defense budget in the last years of his presidency. And Reagan promised even more. So the military made it clear that their preferred candidate was Reagan. And I think that I always, you know, not many people now remember that, but I remember it very clearly. And I think from then on in, you know, there was no stopping them. Um, you know, if you look at what happened in, in the 1991, uh, the beginning of the 90s, the Soviet Union that had been the justification for this enormous military machine for 40 years that you know the cold war we had to we had to pursue the cold war we had to be ready ready to defend ourselves against the soviets the evil communists well suddenly they collapsed they weren't there anymore what happened to our defense budget it declined by a, actually a comparatively small amount about four three or four percent for a few years uh, and they did dismantle a lot of, you know, quite a lot of units and everything and brought troops over from Germany. And then by 1997, hey, presto, we were off to the races again. The defense budget started going up. So the, you know, this is a system that demands, you know, if there isn't an enemy, they have to create one. They create one. Well, even like with the Afghanistan war, we left Afghanistan and then immediately increased the defense budget. Sure, and increase it even more. You know, next uh, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. twenty-two budget is now slated to be almost seven hundred, just a shade under seven hundred eighty billion dollars. Well, the corporate rating of the U.S. government that began under the Reagan administration included not only, of course. Uh, the military defense contractors, but so many other industries as well. Now, you were talking about uh, about Kennedy and the missiles, of course, and he was famous for the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. What has happened? Talk to me in terms of the nuclear industry and how that has built to, to, to the point that people don't even try anymore. You know, when I was younger, we used to march in the streets, ban the bomb. I don't think the average American even realizes that the United States has, what, like 7,000 in our arsenal. And the smallest nuclear bomb that exists today makes Nagasaki and Hiroshima look like a pinprick. How do you see the nuclear issue at this point? Well, I think it's incredibly scary. For the reason, part of the, part of the reason you just said, which is that, you know, in our young days, um, people used to march against the bomb. I remember in 19, 
81, 82, there were a million people demonstrated in New York for a nuclear freeze. I mean, it was a huge issue. Now, no one seems to give a hoot. But it's more dangerous than ever. It's more dangerous because, unnoticed by so many people, they're adopting a much more sort of casual attitude towards nuclear war. You know, they're making small nuclear weapons. Very, This is extremely dangerous. They're making nuclear weapons that they say, well, they're so so small. I mean, they're not really small. I think they've introduced one which has the potential yield of uh, 300, the equivalent of 300 tons of TNT, which is an enormous explosion. But that's considered a mini nuke. And they're saying there's, you know, the line with conventional weapons is getting blurred. Means makes it more likely they would actually use them. And I see this as incredibly dangerous that they, you know, there's a whole school of thought in Washington of, you know, these young analysts, none of them actually ever been in a war themselves. They wouldn't muddy their feet with that. But they're arguing, oh, yes, we could have a limited nuclear war with China over Taiwan. This is incredibly frightening. And I really do wish people would protest more about it. Now, under the Obama administration, we actually increased our our nuclear arsenal. How about under Trump? How 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 did things go in terms of nuclear arrangements under Trump, and how are they under Biden? Well, they're just carrying on. I mean, really, you can't see too That's much. That's all they do, really. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. can't really yeah. see too much difference between any of them. They all uh, Obama, you know, uh, okayed. Uh, Major, they call it modernization. Really, it's a you know a whole new nuclear force they're building um, at staggering cost. Um, starting in 2010, he authorized it: a new bomber, new missile, new submarine, new submarine missile. Uh, the B twenty one Raiders. The B twenty ones. They finally they fessed up finally what it's going to cost: two hundred billion per. Can you believe that? Uh, two hundred and three actually. Um, a new ICBM, again, incredibly dangerous um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, new missile subs, you know. I mean, first of all, it's sort of, you know, it'll bankrupt us um, because the costs are completely out of control. Uh, I don't want to get too technical about it, but basically they're proceeding with the production of all these things before they've been tested. So... Oh. So then we don't really know what they're going to cost. I mean, now they've put this, as I said, a $200 billion cost on the bomber for, per copy. But <clears throat> because the thing isn't properly designed yet, isn't properly, you know, we don't really really know how it's going to work, if it's going to work. Uh, it means whatever, but we can't get rid of the system because there are people, you know, contractors all over the country, in you know, every con- congressional district and certainly every s- state in the union, uh, it'll be politically impossible to stop so they can basically charge what they like. Well, it's politically impossible if someone is a complete coward and only cares about their job as opposed to the welfare of the country. But that's another topic that we'll get to. You talk quite a bit in the book about Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. Americans were awakened to the debacle of our exit strategy. But what people were not aware enough of is all of the terrible things that were happening while we were there, uh, particularly the last 10 years. And you and others have certainly pointed out that this had very little to do uh, with beating back the Taliban at a certain point 
um, and especially also you talk quite a bit about in your book about the uh, nefarious covert relationship between the United States military. Um, for instance, our supporting Pakistan, while Pakistan itself had created the Taliban. Um, this is the kind of thing where Americans are now saying, what were we doing in Afghanistan? We know that it was a two, what, $2.3 trillion war. $2 trillion of that went directly to the military uh, contractors. Uh, what do you want people to know about our involvement in Afghanistan? Well, I think they should realize that for the people in charge, it was a tremendous success. I mean, you know, in, in general terms, we look, you know, in, obviously the U.S. lost uh, the Taliban are back in power. But for the people running the war, it was a huge success. I mean, you said $2 trillion. Some people got those $2 trillion. That's a lot of money, even today. Um, so, for you know, as we you quoted a minute ago, you were saying how they, quoting me, saying, you know, the, the Marine generals saying, well, you know, it's not going to, sending more troops won't make any difference to the war, but it'll do us good at budget time. That was the point. Um, so... You know, for 20 years, the the war on terror, uh, particularly as fought in Afghanistan, um, was a huge money generator. I mean, uh, you know, it, it really served its purpose. Um, and so who cares, really, if by the end of it all, out of, out of Afghanistan is in even more ruins than it was before, and the people we were fighting are back in power. Not even to mention the horror of the suffering and the death of 3,500 American soldiers, other Allied soldiers, and how many uh, how many Afghans died in that war? No one really knows. Yeah. It's um, yeah, really, no one knows. But hundreds of thousands for sure. It could be more. Um, you know, I mean, you you go to places like Helmand Province that were heavily bombed, and you'll find every family will say, "Oh, we lost 12 people." You know, 10, 12, 15 people. Um, so no, no, no one knows, but it was horrendous. A topic that is hot right now has to do with our our very corrupt relationship with the regime in Saudi Arabia. There was a lot of talk before Biden was elected that he was going to stop our cooperation with the Saudis uh, that enabled them to perpetrate a genocidal war against the Yemenis. Today, however, we're back to selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Um, there doesn't seem to be a way for us to end this. What tell us more about Yemen and what's going on there? Well, right. Well, the you know the Saudi. I'm surprised you know if there's anything in Yemen left because the Saudis have been bombing it now for what six years, um, relentlessly, steadily. Um, it, you know they haven't. I mean, by the way, they're they're losing. I mean, the the Houthis, their Houthi enemies, are controlling more and more of the country, but. Uh, and we go on supporting them. As you said, Biden promised to end that. I mean, there's a bipartisan consensus in Congress. I mean, people complain there's no bi bipartisanship. Well, there is. <laughs> this issue is so disgusting that it has brought Democrats and Republicans together to end U.S. support. And yet we're still supporting. We're still selling weapons to Afghanistan, uh, to uh, sorry, to Saudi Arabia, uh, bombs and missiles. Uh, particular beneficiary is the Raytheon Corporation, um, routinely going out the door. And as I describe in the book, you know, to really understand how deep, deeply rooted this system is, you go to there's a place called Eskan Village outside the Saudi capital of Riyadh, 
where there's a thousand Americans there, American service people and their families. And their mission is, you know, is allegedly to train the Saudi forces, but their actual mission, and it's, this is written down, is to sell them weapons. I mean, so we have, you know, we have a huge sort of part of our military deployed in Saudi Arabia as arms salesmen. Um, we have, you know, the Saudi military itself can't really keep going, certainly can't keep flying without American contractors uh, keeping the planes, you know, maintained because the Saudis apparently can't do it themselves. So, you know, we are inextricably linked. It's not like we are supporting the Saudi war in Yemen. It's the U.S.-Saudi war in Yemen. Thank you. Thank you. So war profiteering used to be considered a crime, and now it's an industry. It's a way of life. Um, you know, it's a, you know, the, back in Vietnam, I remember there was a, someone saw a graffiti in a Lockheed Corporation plant in California and said, don't knock the war that feeds you. Um, oh, and that's, uh, you know, that's the that way really we... says it all. It says it all, yeah. Well, over 50% of all jobs in the United States are at least indirectly defense-related. And the argument, of course, is that it's it, we have a war economy. So many people's jobs depend on it. But the truth of the matter is something I think that Americans need to realize is that there's a greater return on investment in a peace economy, whether it has to do with education, health care, the things that actually build people's lives. And I think the conversation we need to be having is just as we're talking and people realize the importance of talking about a shift from a dirty economy to a clean or green economy, we have to also shift from the idea of a military economy, a war economy, to a peace economy. JFK said, if we don't end war, war will end us. And yeah. it's, it's like you said, people aren't even talking about these things right now, such as, such as nuclear bombs. People are partly fatigued, partly exhausted. And also, I think, Andrew, for people like you and me, we have a, an institutional memory. We have a, uh, we're old enough to have a memory of a time when we did stand up to the U.S. war machine. We did push it back, and we pushed it back successfully in, relating, in relation to the Vietnam War. But as you have said uh, here today and as you talk about in your book, they just keep on going. It's just this parasite that will get rid of one symptom. One war is just a symptom. The Vietnam War is a symptom. The Afghan War is a symptom. The Iraq War was a symptom. But we're not getting to that root cause. And that root cause, it seems to me, has the only way we will get to the root cause is if more people understand the depth of the corruption that is involved here, which takes us to the subject of the political parties. Um, I'm sure that you have dealt in your own mind writing this book and writing all of the books that you um, that you work on. The only way you can go to sleep at night, the only way you can keep going, I'm sure, is if you think there must be some way out of this. What, in your opinion, is a way out of this? If both major corporate, corporate-backed parties, which are whores to the military-industrial complex, no matter who is president, whether it's Obama or Trump or Biden or, or Bush, these guys just keep throwing the money at the military-industrial complex. How do we stop this? Well, I think um, I don't have a complete answer, but I think one very important thing to, to get into people's heads is this is all done in the name of defense. You know, we, 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 we got to have, you know, OK, so maybe we're wasting a lot of money or you know, spend, spending 
giving away too much to the contractors. Maybe there's a lot of inefficiency and so forth. But we need we you know we need this powerful defence, and the, it's got to get into people's heads that we don't actually get much defence out of it. Very little. Um, you know, we have. I mean, we do keep losing these wars, um, and I love the way you describe them as symptoms. Um, you know that 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 they because their first objective is not you know fighting efficiency and martial prowess but getting the money doing us good at budget time um that you know that's you get a lousy defense out of it so you get you know planes that don't work uh, you know inaccurate you know all the things that don't work uh there's a <clears throat> terrible you know the, the navy program the literal combat ship that basically can't make it across the Atlantic. Um, and, you know, there's a host of examples that I'm... They don't with. care. They don't care. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. And that's that's why, you know, you do get people on the, you know, the right wing of the Republican Party who agree with this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, people, as I, um, I've said before, that they... You know, people who I talk to who give me you know, information I use I use in my in the book and other writings. You know, their political views on other matters on social issues make my hair stand do make my does make my hair stand on end. But we agree on this, and I think that's something that the public at large has to really understand that they're being ripped off. They're being not just you know spending too much money. They're not getting anything in return. I remember when Ronan Farrow wrote his book, The War on Peace, and he talked about the fact that it, it, there was a, 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 a transformation from a time when the State Department truly was uh, leading foreign policy in the United States and when it basically was turned over to the military for the most part, that our, our foreign policy is dominated by military concerns. And as you make so clear in this book and elsewhere, our military policy is dominated by financial concerns, short-term yeah. profit. And this, of course, is the corruption of our society across the board. There's money, a lot of money to be made in sick people, found the health insurance companies and big pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of money to be made in, in, in people who have committed even petty, petty crimes that we can put in jail, found the, mili- the uh, prison industrial complex, and there's a lot of money to be made in these military misadventures. And, and what you're saying is so true. It's an awakening inside people we don't, you know, everybody keeps saying we have the most powerful military in the world. If we're the most powerful military in the world, how come we just lost three wars in a row? I mean, <laughs> if, what, do we, what else do you need to say? It, yeah, yeah. So what, what do you feel? If, if people, as long as we do have, and of course this is getting into areas, political areas that are outside the purview specifically of your book, but I'm sure you've thought about this plenty. It seems to me in so many areas, including this one, The problem is probably not the consciousness of the American people. The problem is the, um, is the damage that's been done to our, to our democracy. So that the will of the people is, um, is so often not represented, uh, by the actions of our government. Um, as long as this corporatized duopoly has this chokehold, uh, on the process, and as long as these defense industries have a chokehold on the parties, um, it's going to take some real revolutionary turn of events, I think, for there yep. to be a fundamental pattern disruption. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and unfortunately, you know, the control is getting 
you know, more tighter all the time, you know, the greater and greater control of the media, um, you know, greater and greater efforts to now to stamp out the internet, which for for a time was a very democratic medium, which is becoming correct. Less less so, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like great efforts to clamp down on that, um, you know, and just to sort of this, the, the propaganda that's, you know, that's getting more and more insidious. I mean, people now just on, you know, particular military subject we're talking about. I mean, they're really teaching people to hate China. You know, it's a, you know, mm-hmm. Chinese Americans of uh, Chinese descent are now, you know, facing harassment in the street. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, well, as, and yet, you know, that's becoming acceptable. Well, as long as you brought up the topic, um, Taiwan, what are your thoughts about what's going to happen there? The Chinese, you know, I felt the way we left, um, uh, the, the way we left Afghanistan, I remember saying to um, my friend Joe Cerencioni, you might know at the Quincy, Quincy oh. Institute, I said, I'm sure that, you know, generals in China and, and, um, and Russia are looking very closely at all this, chuckling and making their plans. And of course, it wasn't long after that, that the Chinese planes were uh, penetrating into Taiwanese airspace, etc. What do you think is going to happen? Well, it's 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 very you know it, it is frightening. Um, you know, certainly the 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 Taiwan you know the threat to Taiwan is being sort of pumped up here in in the media uh, from the Pentagon. I mean, it's like more and more journalists are acting like stenographers. Um, just repeating. I mean, just take the one little point you just mentioned. Uh, uh, we were told that Chinese planes were penetrating into Taiwanese airspace, but they weren't really. They, the Taiwan has declared an air defense, air defense identification zone, which every most countries have, which is like the area you watch and you basically for air traffic control purposes, and but you don't control it. It's not, you know, it doesn't belong to Taiwan. And what the Chinese were doing was sending planes that went along the very edge of this. Um, look, I mean, even the Taiwanese chief of staff, uh, chief of staff of the Taiwanese Air Force, said the other day that he thought that he said they were just training flights, and yet people here are being terrified on a nightly basis by cable news into believing that China's really already attacking Taiwan. I believe. Okay, I want. I'm sorry. Go, go on. on. Please go on. I just want well, to say. I, I... No, you go on. Well. I... I want to deconstruct that a little bit because it sounds like I was one of the people who bought into uh, a media narrative, which you described as them just being uh, stenographers to uh, to military spokespeople. Now, we were told for a very long time not to worry about Hong Kong uh, because it was such a capitalist, uh, successful capitalist enterprise that that China was not going to act too uh, too, too vigorously. Uh, to clamp down on freedoms, et cetera. Well, obviously that turned out to be wrong. So when oh. Xi said uh, our patience will not last forever regarding Taiwan, was it really so unreasonable of us to have concerns about Taiwan? Not that I think there's anything we could do about it. I think really that's my point. Well, yes. I mean, you know, Xi, um, he's obviously not a, not a particularly person one would like to be ruled by. Um, you know, I find it fairly repellent, his whole cult of personality and his increasingly repressive regime. On the other hand, they, they do keep saying, uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan, that, um, you know, they 
they will they wanted to be part of you know unify unify China by peaceful means. Um, I think the great mistake we've made is is by you know amping up making these threats um, you know getting off this ambiguity. Mean, don't normally have kind words for Henry Kissinger, but he did help establish this situation where, you know, we everyone pretended to agree that China was really one country and they had just to, happened to have two d- different governments in different parts. And when we started straying off that, and uh, let me say in a second why I think that's happened, um, you know, the Chinese, that gave the excuse on the other side to start sounding more bombastic. Let me say, I was about to say earlier that the a great friend of mine who was uh, who died recently, who was a weapons, a longtime Pentagon um, official and weapons designer, he said on the basis of his many years there, he said the U.S. government has two functions: to buy arms at home and sell arms abroad. And if you look at what's really been going on in Taiwan, a lot of it has been to do with. You know, the opportunity to sell ever more arms to Taiwan. Um, I think that's, you know, as we've been said, you know, during this conversation, we've said it's all about money. And I think a lot of the, the hoopla now about about the threat to Taiwan and what we're going to do to defend Taiwan and are the Chinese going to attack Taiwan um, ha- is to do with this is a great way to generate money, especially after the Afghan money tap has been turned off. Well, that's very clear. All they've done is just he, when when President Biden said we've ended the war in Afghanistan, all they did was start moving ships into the South China Sea, et cetera. And as you make yeah. so clear in the book, who can be the enemy that we get people scared about today? What can be the issue that gets people all revved up today so that we can justify the military spending? I want everybody to be very clear. The book is called The Spoils of War. When it says power, profit, and the American war machine, there should not be a war machine. (laughs) There shouldn't be a war machine. There should be military activity that we absolutely feel that we must partake of uh, when, in fact, there is real justification to do so. And I'm so grateful to you, Andrew Coburn, for making it clear uh, what the facts are. And I think that for, for all of you who are listening, what's important we realize is that if we continue to elect people, if people continue to talk about issues that don't even have anything to do with this, I noticed when I ran for president last year how little conversation there was. Uh, regarding uh, military policy, regarding foreign policy. I would talk about it. Bernie Sanders would talk about it. Tulsi would talk about it. And uh, obviously it was not considered convenient by the party powers that be. And people have just been lulled to sleep. People have just been lulled to sleep. And um, this is as dangerous. We should see the trajectory of American military policy as every bit as dangerous as our environmental policies. We have now awakened people to the realization that environmental degradation is an existential threat to our species. So is our military posture. You cannot continue to just casually make nuclear bombs. You cannot have a citizenry that it continues to be so disengaged from this topic and not be on a march to um, future horror. It just, 
it just can't happen. So I thank you, uh, Andrew Coburn, for writing a book and all of your writing, which awakens people. And I know it can't be, you know, I think of, uh, of you writing a book like this. It can't be psychologically and emotionally easy uh, to write a book like this. It can't be easy to be the one who is shouting out and what in some cases must feel like the wilderness to say, this is happening, this is happening. But yeah. I hope you realize that many of us want to read this book because we want the information because we know that it's true and we want to take your message uh, help amplify it help to warn the people of the United States who I do think are good and dignified and noble people at heart who if they know the facts and see a way out of this mess will pave the way out of this mess and uh, as it happens which I do believe it will happen uh, you are one of the people uh, towards whom we will owe a great debt of gratitude. So I thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Marianne. And thank you for everything you have done. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the book or about any of your other work that you'd like to mention before we leave? Uh, no, I, uh, um, I mean, you can read me fairly regularly in Harper's Magazine. I'm the Washington editor and I have a long column every, every couple of months. Um, you know, and I think people just... I, I really urge people, you know, that what I think one of the things that's been going on, sadly, is a sort of less and less capacity for interest in critical thinking, uh, less and less right. ability to, you know, really think when they, someone announces, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we have to, the Russians are about to invade somewhere or Chinese are about to invade somewhere or whatever, we have to fight this threat or that threat, to think it through and think, wait a minute, is that actually likely you know, maybe it might be, maybe it might not. But, you know, more and more we have to use our own heads because we're being fed so much misinformation. Well, Lloyd Austin, who is our Secretary of Defense, is a former board member at Raytheon. The very yeah. fact that we now go against the traditions of Congress and allow a former general or a general to be the head of the of the Defense Department, which of course should be led by the um, by a civilian. Uh, he made a big deal about changing into his civilian clothes, but it takes more than that to change your yeah. headset uh, from the uh, uh, from a state of the uh, board member of Raytheon uh, to the head of the U.S. Defense Department. And it's these little things that aren't little at all that we just allow to happen that have gotten us into this uh, situation. But the more information that we get about how bad it is, I think the more conviction and more passion um, uh, and more sense of responsibility we will have uh, towards making it good. A fundamental pattern disruption. And um, people such as yourself are helping to make it happen. So thank, thank you very, very much. Hey, thanks thank a lot. You. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Marianne Williamson podcast. I know some of the information we talked about today wasn't exactly cheerful, but the good news about the bad news is that we're looking at it clear-eyed, open-eyed, and we know that we are, as a generation and as a people, the ones who have to change it. Sometimes you don't exactly know what you're going to do. You don't know how you're going to do it, but you find within yourself the commitment to doing whatever it is. And that's where I think a lot of us are right now. So thank you for listening. Uh, please remember, go to mariannewilliamson.substack.com. Sign up on my mailing list at marianne.com. And um, we'll continue to continue. I look forward to it. Thank you.